Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Many in the entertainment industry had been waiting on numbers from Netflix on how many subscribers they lost in the last quarter. They lost just under 1 million subscribers instead of the 2 million they had predicted. That still leaves a lot of questions on what they can do to stop the people from leaving in droves. To go over whether this is a Netflix-specific issue or if the entire streaming business has a problem, we'll speak to Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode. It's less bad than they predicted, but it's still not good to lose a million subscribers. The reality is, whether they lost a million or two or three, they sort of already baked in the bad news for Wall Street. What Wall Street and everyone else wants to figure out is, what are you going to do about it? And the short answer is, not a lot. I mean, Netflix is going to make some tweaks and we can talk about those. But the last three months, there's been a lot of folks, particularly in Hollywood, weighing in on what Netflix ought to do. And what they really want Netflix to do is to act like sort of everyone else, to stop doing binge releases of all their episodes, to promote movies and TV shows instead of just the service, to make better stuff and put it in theaters. And essentially, Netflix is saying, no, we're, we think we're doing it right. We just need to tweak some stuff along the edges. Now, they may not be either accepting reality or they may just not want to come out and say what they're doing. But if you're looking for Netflix to make huge wholesale changes, at least for right now, they're saying they're not going to. They're, they're making some tweaks. We can talk about the tweaks. Right. Yeah. And so we did get some answers to some questions. There's a lot of questions still left over. When it comes to content specifically, right, you, you mentioned it there, there was a criticism of putting out too much stuff. A lot of people really not liking a lot of it. They did say that they're going to kind of cap almost what they're going to be spending on content to about $17 billion. They said that's going to be the number we're going to stick with for a few years at least. That is a meaningful announcement from them. It's both probably something they wanted to do. It's also very much assigned to Wall Street saying, you know how we've you know, had more viewers every year, made more revenue, and then spent more on, on content. Well, now we're at the point where we don't need to spend more on content or we're not going to spend more on content. $17 billion is still a lot of money. You can fund all kinds of stuff with that, but they're not going to keep bumping that number up and up and up. And you can call that being choosier or more efficient or more thoughtful about the way they're spending. But that's sort of a reality that I think people expected to show up sooner than later, and now it's here. 
password sharing is an interesting one that they're trying to get a handle on. They think that there's more than 100 million households using a Netflix account without paying for it. Obviously, this would go huge for losing all the subscribers there. And they're experimenting with what to do to control that problem. In Latin America, they're adding a, a feature called Add a Home. For So for two ninety nine, mm-hmm. you can add basically your access for your account to another household, uh, another geographical location, basically. Yeah, this is something that, again, is to change for them because they used to say password sharing was no problem. Now they're at the point where they're saying, you know what, we have 220 million subscribers and it's harder and harder to increase that number. In fact, it's been going down. So maybe we could try to get some of those people who aren't paying us to pay for us. Wall Street likes to hear that because it's a very cheap way to add subscribers. And also, again, it makes more sense. They're trying it now in Latin America. And it's really just a nudge to people saying, hey, you know, you're getting our stuff for free. And you probably shouldn't do that. Would right. you like to pay? <laughs> and you can expect that to roll out in other countries as well. Totally. Yeah. And then it eventually it'd probably come here. The advertising part, the ads, the ad tier that they're planning on rolling out, they're saying it should be coming maybe sometime early next year. But this is a big one, something that it seems like they haven't fully started on yet. I guess they're going to rely on a te- uh, uh, on Microsoft and a team that they still have to hire to really handle all of this. So they could be in for a rocky rollout for this. Yeah, I mean, again, the, it's a very big deal in one hand for Netflix to say, we're going to have ads, because Netflix has always said, we don't want ads, they're bad for the service, they complicate things, they mean you have multiple constituencies, instead of just trying to please your customers, you're not trying to play advertisers, and I'm saying, forget about that, actually turns out we'd like the money from that, and also it makes it we, so we can have a cheaper offering, maybe help keep subscribers. So this is something they've embraced grudgingly, and it, you can also see how grudgingly it is, because they're not really investing any money up front in this. They're sort of renting out Microsoft's help for the near term with the promise that one day they'll figure this out on their own. It's a little un-Netflix-y for them to sort of come in with a half-baked product. And their argument is, well, we've done this before, but but we'll see. And to reiterate, you the Netflix you have now is not going to have ads unless you want it to have it. Sure, unless you They're going to have some kind of offering that Right. They're going to have some kind of offering that says for this much money, you can have this stuff and ads, or you can pay more and not have ads. So you don't have to have ads in your Netflix. And so in the near term, if you have Netflix, nothing will change. But, you know, eventually there are going to be compromises that Netflix is going to have to make one way or another about stuff that has audience versus stuff that advertisers want versus stuff that subscribers want. Um, They'll have to balance all of that. And uh, one last interesting thing, too, because you had uh, recently written about how uh, Netflix was having a hard time hanging on to some of its newest subscribers Mm -hmm. that were leaving early. So you opened it up and got a lot of comments on this. And, you know, the the comments really range, but a lot of people just open about, hey, you know, I just drift around from service to service when I'm getting the content that I want. Some people were saying that they're not happy with the programming that uh, Netflix is offering up. So there's a, a big range of reasons why people are just coming in and then leaving right away. I mean, the thing that is universally true, and, and uh, you know, the people who write to you have different motivations for writing at you. But one thing that is true for Netflix and everyone else is that, and this is a good thing for consumers and bad for the companies, is that it's much, much easier to turn off your subscription. If you ever had an AOL dial-up subscription or a cable TV subscription and tried canceling those, you, you, you know very well how difficult <laughs> intentionally it used to be. And now, you know, it's basically a couple clicks if you're motivated to do it. And more and more consumers are sort of figuring that out. I think that's good for consumers. It allows you to sample shows when you want and, and how you want. Um, and it's still an edge case. I don't think it's that many people, but it's certainly a problem for Netflix and for everyone else that it's easy to sign up and it's easy to stop mm-hmm. signing up. Or easy to stop paying. All right. Well, we'll see how, where, how all of this continues to develop. Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode and host of the Recode Media Podcast. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Costco has two recession-proof items at their stores, the 150 hot dog combo and their 499 rotisserie chickens. When it comes to the chicken, Costco has built out its own chicken business, contracting with farmers to raise their birds, building a feed mill, a hatchery, and their own slaughter plant. For more on how Costco uses these chickens just to get you in the door to buy more stuff, we'll speak to Kenny Torella, reporter at Vox. So the typical grocery business like Costco buys chicken from some of the big meat producers like Tyson Foods or Pilgrim's Pride. But in 2019, Costco took a really unprecedented move and said, you know, we're going to cut out the middleman and we're going to raise our own chickens. So as you mentioned, they set up their own feed mill, their own hatchery, their own slaughter plant. And they also contracted farmers to set up around 500 barns in Nebraska and Iowa, each one housing tens of thousands of chickens for the Costco supply chain. And, you know, that's really helped them keep their foreign rotisserie chicken price, which is quite low. Most rotisserie chickens will cost anywhere from six to ten dollars. And of course, that's benefited consumers as inflation has just been skyrocketing, especially for food over the last year. But it's also really upset some people who are critical of industrialized animal farming. And um, just to give you one example, one of those people is someone who lives near a lot of these barns that are raising chickens for Costco. I spoke with a man uh, by the name of Greg Lance, who lives in Butler County, Nebraska, and he has uh, about 48 of these chicken barns within a mile and a half radius of his home. So there's about 2 million chickens being raised for Costco at any given point near this guy's house. And he says it's really affected his quality of life. The smell is awful. 2 million chickens and and all their manure kind of condensed into one area, but also the smell of, you know, dead decomposing birds is around 5% of chickens raised for meat don't even make it to the slaughterhouse. They die on the farm or on the way to the slaughterhouse. And Greg Lance said that it's really, it's really been affecting him because it just smells awful. He can't (laughs) open his windows. There's swarms of flies. So that's just one example of how a company setting up its own chicken supply chain in a very condensed geography can affect the people who live near them. Right. I mean, I, I remember as a kid growing up uh, on near a uh, freeway on ramp there, you know, by where I lived, there was a duck farm there, very small scale, but man, you'd always mm. have to roll up the windows driving by there. So this is just amplified so much more than that. For Costco, you know, they keep that price low. For them, it's a loss leader is what they call in the business. They're not really making any money on that. What they make money on is you coming in and buying all the other stuff that you get. And, you know, just anecdotally for myself, you know, it's hard to get in there without spending a minimum like $300 just on all the other stuff that you're buying. So for them, that business model works. As going back to what you're talking about, some of their practices and everything, the industry has at least given Costco. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like a recent episode with Hollywood royalty, Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? 
Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. some praise for doing some things right. They do treat their birds a little better. And we're talking about industry standards, right? So it's all kind mm-hmm. of relative there. Uh, they help out with that a little bit. And, and some of the contracts that they make with their farmers are a little bit better on average than the normal farmer would get. Costco, you know, has the size and the leverage to be able to set some of its own standards. And some of them are slightly better than industry standards. So as you mentioned, in a Costco slaughter, in the Costco slaughter plant, They use a slaughter method that is a little more humane than the typical slaughter plant. And and what that means is that the chickens are stunned using a a kind of gas that renders them unconscious before they're slaughtered, which, you know, reduces some of their suffering. And also in the chicken industry, most chicken is not raised by employees of the meat company, say like Tyson Foods or Pilgrim's Pride but rather farmers are contractors, kind of like an Uber driver. And in this contract system, they take on much of the liability of the business. So they take out loans worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to build their barns. And some of them really struggle to pay it off because the margins in the poultry business are razor thin. And so one thing that Costco is doing a little differently is their their contracts are a little more fair. They're paying their farmers a base rate instead of paying the best farmers a higher rate, the worst farmers a lower rate. Everyone gets the same amount, and then they award bonuses to, to the best farmers. So that's a little different. But by and large, Costco's chicken supply team look nearly identical to that of, say, Tyson or Foster Farms. We know that uh, Americans love eating their chicken. We eat about 7.5 billion of them every year. (laughs) The stat, I love the way you put it in the article. That's about 23 births for every man, woman, and child in the country. Kenny Torella, reporter at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, we'll tell you about the preliminary report about the shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. The report, unfortunately, was all bad news and found problems at every level. Despite there being almost 400 officers from various agencies, no one took command of the situation. The school itself also didn't follow their own safety protocols, and those that knew the shooter missed several warning signs. For more on how a lack of leadership and communication delayed a confrontation with the gunman, 
We'll speak to Alicia Caldwell, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. The report is scathing from top to bottom. Its body is 77 pages of just top to bottom failures at every level. As you pointed out, law enforcement exhibited or were marked with, with systemic failures. There was apparently confusion over who was in charge, and it turned out ultimately that no one sort of took charge. And in the way things are supposed to happen, in this instance, the Uvalde School District Police Chief, Pete Arredondo, would have been the one in charge. And in fact, he was the one initially thought to have been in charge, right? So the state of Texas, the head of DPS, Stephen McCraw, has said he made the wrong decision. Pete Arredondo made the wrong decisions in declaring this a barricaded person situation as opposed to an active shooter. And you can see throughout the report that, again, almost 400 other law enforcement, state, federal, local, many, many Border Patrol agents, over 150, I believe, about 91 state police officers, including the vaunted Texas Rangers. None of those folks took control. Obviously, all 400 or almost 400 were not in the school building or in the hallway. A lot of your listeners have probably seen snippets of video footage from in the hallway or police body camera footage. And that accompanies the report. The body cam footage, along with hallway footage uh, that was leaked last week to the Austin American Statesman and KVUE television in Austin. But also the city of Uvalde released many hours of body camera footage. It again shows confusion, disarray, a lack of anyone standing up and saying, I'm in charge, though. It does appear that in the hallway, Chief Arredondo was in charge. The report, though, the 77-page report by the committee finds any number of these other officers or agencies could have and perhaps should have taken over right. from a more experienced department, right? And you have all these city police departments. And just kind of continuing on all this, right? So the school police chief, Pete Arredondo, he should have been the incident commander. And a lot of this has to do with that leadership, the incident commander, who a lot of uh, law enforcement experts say should have set up that incident command outside of the school. That way he could have had clearer communication, really been kind of that filter of information to relay things to the officers inside, which were just didn't know. Nobody really knew what was going on. And Pete Arredondo himself said, I just assumed somebody else outside would have taken command. And really, that's right. that, that whole leadership vacuum is, is one of the saddest things. Now, we don't know how much, even if a perfect police response would have changed things inside. They said that the shooter fired over 100 rounds when the, within the first three minutes, really before police were mm-hmm. on the scene. So that's really tough to tell. Right. But still, as you mentioned uh, before, right, it was a barricaded suspect situation, not an active shooter situation, which would have prompted everybody to go in sooner. And there's police that are in that hallway saying, should we go in? Are we supposed to go in? It's just no information, no communication whatsoever when it seems like it should have been coming from Pete Arredondo. Police radios did not work inside that building. So you can see in the original release of video footage, a lot of these guys are on their cell phones. But we know, unfortunately, that there were people inside the room alive, victims. We know a teacher survived. We know one of the teachers who succumbed to her injuries was texting and calling her husband, a local police officer, local law enforcement, telling him she was injured. She was surrounded by injured children. We have 911 calls from injured children who are describing the scene as being surrounded by other injured people. So we do know that people were survived the initial onslaught. Unfortunately, we don't know and and may never know, to be clear and fair to everybody, if someone could have survived their injuries. But... At least two children were not declared deceased until arriving at hospitals or in ambulances, along with one of the teachers who died of her injuries. Tragedy is 
all around this, and yeah. it's 77 pages of tragedies. That was a little bit on the law enforcement angle of things. There was also failures at the school, at the school level, things that the school system there did. They had a, an active shooter plan, you know, something for that, mm-hmm. that they'd have to use in this. But they had this kind of history of complacency, it seemed like. I guess there was nearby alarms that would always go off. So when maybe they heard this alarm, they were kind of uh, ambivalent to it a little bit. Some teachers maybe. But they'd constantly be propping doors open with rocks or other things. There was a shortage of keys at the school. All of these things, again, right, not to say that a perfect response would have stopped anything, but it could have slowed the shooter down initially. I mean, it would have been harder for him to access some of the school classrooms. And that was one of those things that they were just kind of very lax in how they handled all that. It's sort of a perfect storm of failures or missed opportunities, right? The doors didn't lock. The school classroom doors, including... 111 and 112 where this took place. One of the teachers whose classroom that was, the surviving teacher had put in requests. Hey, you've got to fix this lock. It never got done. I believe the most recent request for that assistance was around spring break. So several weeks before this incident. But it was pretty well known around the school campus that some of these locks didn't work or they were very difficult to lock to get latched, if you will. All of that adds up. And the complacency, yes, absolutely. There's what's called bailouts, right? Police chases of suspected folks suspected in criminal activity related potentially to the border. But, you know, this town is, is 70 miles east of the Mexican border. But there's a lot of activity in town of late. There were 50 of these so-called bailouts between February and May. And the report the committee found is, as you described it, complacency. Now, we know from a 911 call at the beginning of this incident that a teacher from that school is inside shouting to kids to get down and lock in their classroom. She's telling 911 that there is an active shooter. So at least teachers on that side or a teacher on that side of the building was aware that this was not a bailout or or it was something more severe that someone was shooting at them or at the building. But perhaps, you know, other teachers on the other side, right? This is a fairly spread out campus. It's an elementary school of, I believe, three grades. I believe it's three through fifth. And so you've got multiple buildings. And obviously the attacker went into a single building, went into classrooms 111 and 112, which it appears uncoincidentally were his fourth grade classrooms when he attended Rob Elementary School many years ago. And he went to that classroom. There's other investigations going on. So we'll learn more even beyond this. But you're right. Just failures all around. Alicia Caldwell, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.